Today's readings are from Exodus chapter 19, 2 to 8, chapter 20, 1 to 3, and chapter 24, 7 to 11. They can be found starting on page 70 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. <clears throat> After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God and called to him from the mountain, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on those wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. <clears throat> the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aram, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli and as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. The word of the Lord. Would you please meet us in this uh, time right now? Um, whether we come from a place of great belief or great doubt, great joy or great difficulty. Uh, we, we walk into this place, um, a lot of us not knowing, other people here, wondering what it's going to be like, wondering if we, um, even though there might be some shred of hope of believing, we, we wonder if it could ever really happen. Maybe we had faith one time a long time ago and it just seems like it's never going to be that real. You are never going to be that real. <clears throat> but what we ask is that you are that real now in this time, that you would speak, that you would show yourself in these words, that you would give us a sense walking out of here that we met with you and you knew our struggles, you knew our joy. And like the Bible tells us that over and over again, despite our mess, despite our fragmentation, our brokenness, our lack of faith, you moved towards us with grace, and you did so by sending eventually your son to draw all of us lost children home. Please be that kind of fatherly God who goes out and seeks us and help us to know your grace in that kind of way today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'm loving the NBA playoffs. Um, and I'm loving, you know, we're right in the middle of it, in case you didn't know. It's the finals, and I'm loving sharing it with my children who are 10, or my, old, my boys. I have a little daughter who's not aware yet of how important basketball is. 
But um, my boys, 10 and 6, almost 7, just kind of following each game. And uh, for them, they usually end too late at night, so we go get the paper in the morning, and they want to see who won. And so it's the kind of thing where I don't really care much about any of the other sports. Um, so on Super Bowl Sunday, you know, you're all expected to be here. But, um, I, you know, I'm okay if tonight, I totally understand, if some of you have to leave a little bit before 5 to catch tip-off in the subsequent defeat of the Miami Heat in Game 3 by um, OKC Thunder, um, which is clearly who I'm rooting for. Um, my, my excitement about basketball goes way back to childhood, and it was kind of cool to be able to say in my formative basketball years, um, Michael Jordan was at his peak. So, you know, my imagination was filled with Michael Jordan and the posters on my wall were Michael Jordan, you know, and I, and I would go to this basketball court right behind my house and practice fundamentals because that's when no one else is around and you've got a whole basketball court, you know, that's what you're taught to do. So I do the dribbling stuff, I do the free throws and mark on the wall how many I made and, um, you know, I do the shooting drills and all that, but eventually you get a little bored and of all of that, and usually as a kid, you end that, that fundamentals practice session with um, starting to do something very different, you know? I would become Michael Jordan, right? And I would, you know, I'd be counting down the seconds of the fourth quarter in the game. You know how this goes, right? And so I'd be, I'd be Michael Jordan, I'd be in the playoffs, I'd be imagining what that would be like, and I'd be the star, you know, I'd hope this shot would go in, and if it didn't, then I'd replay it, the exact same thing over again until I made it you know, and jump up and down probably. Um, if someone was watching, they thought it was so silly, right? Jumping up and down, I made it, you know, the crowd goes wild and all this kind of stuff. Um, what I was doing actually is I was living into, you know, reality, this, 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 sure, this reality that I was never eventually going to live into, you know, in real life, but I thought I would someday. I was, you know, it wasn't my reality yet, but it was a bigger story that was happening that I was following and that in those moments I would put myself into and, you know, live it out, right? And that's exactly, in a sense, what's happening at City Life Church. I don't know if you knew that. Not that City Life's all about basketball as much as I wish it was, but, um, but the, at City Life Church, what's happening is there's a story, um, and it's a story about God, and it's a story that we're, we're looking into today and that we're always looking into, and there's a sense in which we're saying, even, you know, you can see it in the mission statement, inviting new friends to encounter God. I mean, that's, that's a story right there. That's believing that there is this, I mean, it, it, it's a pretty amazing thing that we're saying with even that statement that we really are saying to our friends, many of whom are saying, yeah, yeah, uh, I, I've given up on that. But we're saying, no, really, we believe that folks are going to come walk into this place and God is going to be very real in their life. You know, maybe for the first time, maybe coming back for a second time, but that's what we believe the story is, and we believe that you can live into this, right? And it can become your story. But I think what we're working against when we have that view of things is a really strong other kind of view that we bring to the table, that we bring here every week, many of us. And that is the, you know, this other message, this other sense that we have of the church is really about, I feel like I'm fighting, fighting this all the time, the church is really about learning the rules. You know, it's a path that I want to put myself on uh, maybe um, I finally decided to get my life right, and so tell me the rules. Tell me what this way is. Tell me the boundaries and the structures and the things in this, in this, in this way that I've planted myself on. And actually what you have here is, you know, we're actually looking at the one place, one of the biggest places, the most famous place in Scripture, where we're told the rules, right? And yet what this astonishing point of, that, that we're going to look at today 
is that right in the midst of this rule-giving ceremony called a, actually a covenant ceremony, um, there's, a, there's a really big message that wants us to put that, you know, it's all about rules, it's all about the boundaries, and put that in a sort of more secondary, back-burner place, a subsidiary of this bigger point of you are invited into a story. All right, so that's what we're looking at. And it's a story that then, once in it, creates in your life a unique, an absolutely unique kind of obedience. That's the point today. You're invited into a story. And so as you look at this, and again, we're just looking at parts of this covenant ceremony. You look at 19, chapter 19, verse 4, and chapter 20, verse 2. Listen to how this comes out from God's own framing of this rule-giving ceremony, this covenant ceremony. He introduces it by saying, you yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt. It's a story language. And how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And then again in, in chapter 20, the rules are about to be given, but he starts, he's, God spoke all these words. And does he say rule number one? No, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. It's given within the context of this story of deliverance. Um, I find that this happens a lot with people <clears throat> who are in the church. Maybe you've had this experience. I certainly get it a lot as a minister where someone comes and says, okay, you're a Christian or you go to, you're a church person. Tell me what you think... Uh, you know, the rules are for this particular contentious issue. You know, what does the Bible say about this? Um, or they come to me and they say, okay, you're a minister. Lay down the law on, you know, what you think the Bible says about this, that, and the other. And um, I think I, probably a lot of you are just as naive as me that you kind of like throw your brain out at that point and just try to come up with, Verse, you start talking right away and you start listing things. You start saying, well, there's this verse and there's that verse and there's this thing. And I want to I give you the gift of a new voice in your head for those moments today. And the gift is, I hope that you have this voice in your head at those moments. Shut up. <laughs> Don't do that. Just be, take a second, pause, and think a little bit. I need to tell myself that. Because what's actually going on, I think often in that question of tell me the rules, tell me the rules, tell me the law, what does the Bible say? There's an insidious um, presupposition um, going at work even in the question. And in the, in the presupposition, it, it's insidious just in that we kind of all just buy it. We all kind of jump on board and say, yeah. And we allow the question sort of be, to be framed in a way that's really, if you follow what this, how this story frames things today, it's not very biblical. But we kind of allow, we get caught up in it and we just start you know, talking. And the presupposition is this. It's very simple, that the Christian faith is all about rules. And that you, if you're a Christian, you're a rule follower. You know, you're kind of one of these chief rule followers, so you know, tell me the rules. Don't fall for it. Follow God's example. God's about to give you this, this covenant ceremony, and he stops and he says, let me tell you about the story so that you understand where this stuff is coming from. Let me tell you about, remember how I brought you out of Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings, and I brought you home to myself. That's what he's saying. That's how he frames it. I mean, you can look at this and kind of go, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Okay, I'm the Lord your God. Let's get to the rules, right? That's how a lot of us look at this. Um, but there's uh, a story that you need to understand these rules within. There's this great Jewish scholar named, um, he's a Jewish biblical scholar named Nahum Sarna. This is how he puts it. And he's talking just a sentence of background. He's showing how this covenant ceremony mirrors ancient Near Eastern covenant ceremonies between a greater king and lesser kings. So there was a template that this followed. And then he's saying there's a very critical divergent path that that this biblical covenant takes. It's very insightful. He says this, Unlike all other treaties, which are individual discrete documents of state, the Sinai covenant is embedded in a narrative context from which it cannot be separated and from which it derives its meaning and its justification. This week I got to, um, I mean, I, by the way, I think he's right. I think he's, he's on to it. And this week, um, let me just give you an example. This week I was downtown and I got to try out this um, great little lunch spot. It's a cart on the corner of 7th and I um, called Senor Burrito. Anybody, Senor Burrito, anybody tried it? Okay. Uh, it was very good. And what happened was I got there before the lunch rush and I had this time, it was just me and him. And so he, I don't know what I said. I asked, must have asked something. He just started talking and telling me this whole kind of the story of Senior Burrito, you know, like this, all this stuff. And he goes into all these different phases. And I even jotted a couple things in because I'm afraid I'm going to miss some of it if I don't have it on, on paper. But basically he said, you know, um, I started out in Mexico City, but then, you know, I came to the United States. And, and, you know, when you do that, you have to relearn everything and start all over again. He said, I started from the, the ground up. I just got in as a dishwasher in some restaurant in West Sac. Um, and I, I had to work through every aspect of restaurant service and food service and all this kind of stuff. He's telling me this whole story. And then he said, um, he started going into, um, at first I didn't really catch what he was talking about, but he kept using the word respect. And he kept talking about respect for Southwestern cuisine. And then he was talking about all these ingredients and how, I, he was basically getting at how authentic these burritos were and how they had to have these certain ingredients in it. And, and he kept using the word respect. You know, so I'm sensing this, story that he sees himself within. And then I said something about, yeah, I heard you, I, I saw something about your place on Yelp, you know, and he said, oh yeah, Yelp, I, I don't even have a smartphone. But all of a sudden one day these people come up to me and they tell me that I'm in a contest, you know, for my food. And they're saying, give me three of your best plates. And then he was complaining, he was saying, you know, it's very unfair that I have, I have this cart here and these other people I'm up against, they have a whole kitchen and I have to compare my food to them. It's very unfair. You know, he's got this whole story. I thought it was hilarious. I don't have a smartphone, so I just found out one day I was in a competition, you know. Um, and so he's telling me all of this stuff and, 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 and I just was enjoying it. By the time I sat down with that burrito, you know, it, I had this whole sense of, you know, what this burrito meant. It was very good, but I had this whole picture of it of how it fit within the story and this great guy who told me a story. And then think about how it might have gone if I came at it very differently, right? Like how that that burrito might have been for me if I came at it and said, and I did all the talking, right? And I said, do you have a nutrition printout for this thing? I really want to know what's in it, right? And then then I said, what about, do you have a permit to be here on the corner of the city? Um, And did you get one of those ratings, one of those pages? I didn't see it stuck up, you know, from the city about whether, you know, how good your food is and whether you've met all the standards. I I didn't see it. Can you tell me about it? And is your chili relleno, is it gluten-free or could you make it, you know, for my preferences, I was wondering. 
Um, and also, I, I don't mean to trouble you while you're getting that out, but where's the farm located where you got your chicken? Um, and was it, you know, cage-free and hormone-free and 100% organic? And I don't know if you know that it, what its name. Did it have a name? Um, I mean, you could see how I would come up with, if I came, I, okay, I went a little far on that one, but if I came with that kind of perspective, you know, how different of a view I would have as I sat down. I might have been irritated about a couple things that weren't to my liking about the burrito, right? So I come out of this, and isn't that exactly, and think about it, isn't that a, a lot of the ways that we come at the Bible or church and we come with that kind of approach? Instead of just, in a sense, putting in the time and listening to the story in which, you know, it fits. And how maybe we fit into the story. And think about that. How do we fit? If, if these statements are indicative of how God frames all of this covenant ceremony, where do we fit? He says, you yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt, how I carried you on eagle's wings. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You know how we fit? We fit as people who, who are enslaved, who are in great need of rescue. We find ourselves as the people who need to, as the story of Exodus began, who need to cry out and hope that God hears us and how we're dependent on his answer. And in a sense, all of this, you wrap it all up together and it means we're in a very vulnerable position in the story. We don't necessarily like that role that we're given in the story, but that, that's it. That's our role. That's how we fit. It's not we brought, carried ourselves out of Egypt on our own wings and our own strength, right? It's not that. It's I came. I heard your cry. I brought you up. And what's extremely difficult about this is that you and I have defense mechanisms that have taken decades to refine to avoid being in this kind of vulnerable place. Essentially the vulnerable place where we say, we're comfortable eventually saying, and having this be a part of our identity where we say, I am a sinner in need of God's grace. How do you come to a point of being able to say that? I went to a a funeral once, attended this funeral uh, several years back of someone that I had gone to church with so I knew the person who was um, being eulogized. And I was being mentored by the pastor who was leading the ceremony. And the man who died, his name was Fred. And the pastor began the eulogy with these words. Fred was a sinner. I mean, whoa. What is he saying? Where is he going with this, right? And the picture of Fred is on the screen in his beaming smile and just the Fred we all knew. You see, Fred had, like, he was a devoted member of this Christian community that everyone knew well, and I I think he hosted a small group at his house, and he he was very active. But he was also one of those people that his, he had the rough edges that were a lot more apparent than most of us like to have our rough edges in the context of, of church community. So so there was sort of a double meaning, like you might be comfortable in a ch- certain church setting of saying, yeah, we're all sinners. Okay, you might have heard that before. But, the, you know, at this point where this minister is saying this and eulogize, it had, a, it had like an extra layer of meaning because Fred's edges were kind of rough and they were out there and we saw them. 
what I liked about it was that it gave witness to this absolutely bizarre and strange fact about the Christian community, that it, can, it becomes actually normative when the Christian community is at its, at its best. It becomes normative that people are owning and entering into the, their role that the Bible gives us in this story. The one who's vulnerable, the one who needs to cry out, the one who's a sinner, the one who is utterly dependent on God's grace for anything that there is to boast about in life. In a sense, like, if, you, if you're a Christian, one of the greatest compliments that probably could, could be exhibited about your faith at your funeral someday, right? Oh, now I'm having you imagine the end of life and where you might be. But it, one of the greatest compliments that you might have is that your minister would know that it would do justice to the way you lived your life to start, you know, the eulogy that way. Don't get worried. I I'm, 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 don't plan on doing that with anyone um, ever. But... Uh, but imagine, that would actually be reflective of, of a, a Christian faith lived out incredibly well. That you, there were clear examples. People in your community, people knew you, people know you. They know that you're comfortable, that you've specifically in concrete ways put yourself into that story in that way. I am broken. My life is a mess. I need God's help. I'm dependent I cry out, God answers. That's the way the story works. So you think about, you know, you kind of run through and do the mental checklist, you know. Is there, is there some evidence? Is there anything concrete? Have you, you know, or maybe it's time to think about how to, how to start to connect. How do I maybe start to take steps that I'm, I'm showing that I am walking in this story in that kind of way? How do you do that? How do you do that in community? How do you become vulnerable? I don't know, but if you do, if you pursue that, what happens, what kind of the fruit of it that comes out is um, uh, you start to have what I referred to at the beginning, a unique obedience starts to actually flow out of your life, very unique, a unique kind of looking at principles and rules. And God, what do you, how do you want me to live? There's a whole new way of looking at that. It goes a little bit like this. When you look at this covenant ceremony, and when you think about, if you're a Christian, you know Jesus is, brings a new covenant through the cross. As you enter into that relationship with God, that covenant, you need to know, if you're going to get to this kind of obedience, that the covenant itself never rests on the strength of your intentions and your obedience. And you sense, you almost wonder as you read this, whether the Israelites knew that because they're, they're so strong in their statements of obedience. Did you catch this at all? Um, towards the end of the reading where, where, where it says, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. You know? and, and they don't add that little part. They don't say, most of the time, we'll try really hard. They don't. They, they just seem so bold and so ready and jumping on. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses sprinkles blood and what we begin to see, what we begin to know, what's happening here, is that it's not going to be the words of the Israelites and the strength with which they can all say them together. It's not going to be even their own obedience and their persistence at all of these rules. It's not going to be that that's going to keep this thing together. The glue, the absolute linchpin of this whole thing is going to be, well, in the ceremony, did you notice the blood sprinkled? There's going to be blood. Blood has this 
uh, different connotations, but in this particular one, it's cleansing. It's cleansing. Whose blood is going to cleanse? Eventually, through this story, we see that although the Israelites might have thought, oh, if we, if we mess up, it's going to be on us, it's going to be our blood. No. God enters in through his own son, and God, when, it, when you and I fail, God enters in and makes it continue to succeed, the covenant between he and us. Um, and so, so, look, Hebrews chapter 9, if you want to go on and on about it, Hebrews 9 just brings this out and, and refers to how Jesus comes in and the sprinkled blood and a new high priest and how this Jesus is this final, persistent way of God saying, this, this relationship is forever. It's a done deal. And I make it happen. Not the strength of your intentions. And the big message is, your connection to God's love doesn't stand a chance unless God provides perpetual forgiveness for you and your covenant breaking, in a sense. And I praise God that I don't have to stand up here and lead you on a path that says, you know, your relationship with God hinges on the strength of your devotion. So hold it together this week, you know, until next Sunday. Because that would, quite frankly, that's crippling and it can be destructive. And not to mention impossible for you to hold up. And so what does this, this uh, radical, unique obedience? I'm just trying to lay some of the foundational pieces that come out of this story. Um, but basically what it means is that the person who's entered into the, the principles of God by the door of the story of God um, always has to revisit the story. All, you always have to see yourself in this story, even as the rules begin, even in your pursuit of principles and ways of God, even when you have joyfully, you're asking the question, God, what do I do? Just tell me what you want. Even when you're at a joyful place of asking that, remember their story. I love how when you look at the first commandment, um, you shall have no other gods before me. It was fitting that we didn't go on and read all the rest because Martin Luther, uh, the Reformation theologian, said this one is the summary of all of them. They all flow out of this. And now if you've been in the series that we've on the book of uh, Exodus up to this point, and if you, if you, especially if you were the Israelites at this point, when this was said, you shall have no other gods before me, it's almost as if it goes without saying if you know the story. Because the story is God toppling every other potential thing they might trust in one after another to the point of saying, of course, there is no other way. There's nothing else to trust. You know, as the Egyptians, uh, you know, as the plagues came on Egypt and every, you know, thing of nature was, was put down by God's strength and as they got to the Red Sea and the, the fearful God, Yom, of the water and its chaos and its strength and its destruction, God just kind of parts that and they just go through it. At every step of the way, the water in the desert, the manna in the desert, the Israelites have been taught this message. There's no other God. There's no other reason to go anywhere else for the, your future, for your life. Have no other gods before me. As you try to pursue God, it makes sense only within this story. <clears throat> and so the Christian, you're always kind of rechecking the story and making sure you're entering into the obedience of God through the door of the story of God and asking questions like, am I, this is a critical one, am I trying to obey in order to get acceptance? Or, more the way of the story of Scripture, have I found and realized my acceptance in God that's been provided so that now I might obey? 
You know, is my, am I running, 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 trying to obey so that God, maybe you'll accept me? Or am I, have I been just like a waterfall in my life, overwhelmed with the acceptance of God so that I want to swim in life with God? You know, there's, a different, there's totally different approaches to this. And so the Christian's approach to obedience is very unique. It's not, God, today I will try again to earn your love and to live up to your standards. I sure hope I do a little better today than yesterday. It goes a little more like this, if you've got a, kind of the full-orbed biblical view of things, the Exodus 20 view of things. God, today I try to some degree to live like someone saved from the edge of death and given a new life. I try somehow to reflect that that's what's already happened to me. I'm going to close with a story. <clears throat> the story of Yukio Shige. Every day since 2004, Shige, a retired detective, has roamed the Tojimbo Cliffs, a popular site for suicide attempts along the coast of the Sea of Japan looking for people who are considering jumping. If he spots someone in need, he slowly approaches them, offers them a gentle hello, and then does his best to engage them in some conversation. At some point, Shige will offer them a light touch on the shoulder, which almost always causes the person to burst into tears. Shige will then softly say, you've had a hard time up until now, haven't you? The beauty of Shige's work doesn't end there. He will often take the person back to an office, which he rents for $800 a month for counseling sessions. There's no rush in Shige's office. He offers those who go there oroshi mochi, a dish of pounded sticky rice served with grated relish. Traditionally, the food is prepared to celebrate the new year, with each family taking its own rice to be mixed with that of its neighbors. Shige says, when people come here and eat moshi, they remember their childhood. Father, mother, siblings, hometown. They remember they're not alone, Shige says. I want Tojinbo to be the most challenging place, not where life ends, but where it begins, he says. I want you to think about that story. And I want you to imagine how radically transformed your view of following the way of God might be if you begin to see your relationship with God the Father. Your identity is that of one saved from the edge of a cliff. And as you start to see God as the one who searched out high and low for you, and when he found you, he spoke caring, thoughtful words, gently touched your shoulder and helped you finally feel like you're not alone. Let's pray. God of grace, I can ask for nothing more than that you uh, meet all of us in that kind of a way and that you help us to know what to do because sometimes, you know, so often we just want to know what to do but when we see the story is a story of you rescuing, you coming into our life, 
So often we just feel like, well, we don't get it yet, or we want to know what to do to get it better, or we want to understand, we want it to apply or connect more. Seems so vague, maybe. So will you do that kind of work in our hearts? Will you help us know what to do? Will you send your Holy Spirit to bring faith or to bring just enough faith that we take one step back from the cliff, one step closer to you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.